Amen. He will come again. Now, praise God. We don't want to stay here, do we? We're sick and tired of living in this ghetto. We want to get out of this place. We want to move up. Let's go. But then the old Lubin Brothers song, Wait a little longer, please, Jesus. Just a few more days to get our loved ones in. And so I don't know if you've heard of the Lubin Brothers, but they sang a lot of songs, and that's one of them that I remember. Yeah, wow. Brother Tony, thank you for that very, very meaningful devotional, the Ark of Covenant. The covenant. We are to be in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. And then there's the mercy seat, and there's the blood. That was so good. Thank you. You could have kept talking. You said you're not a good teacher. That's the only thing you said that wasn't true. <laughs> but I know what it feels like. So, okay, well, thank you for coming back out tonight. God bless you. How do you feel tonight? Everybody happy and up and functioning and you had a good day, eh? Yep, good. I did too. Had a very, very good day. A lot of good food to eat. And uh, Verwin and I had a lot of good conversations. He should have been working. I should have been studying or walking more. And but we got to talking off and on and we had to break that habit a little bit, but. So we're so glad to be here tonight. We have a very, very important subject before us, and I know that it's uh, somewhat of a delicate subject to discuss in a, in a mixed setting like this, and I think we can do it delicately, appropriately. I would like to talk about the subject of sexual purity. And there probably are few of us in here tonight that are exempt from temptation. We live in a vile, polluted world. <clears throat> when you go shopping, when you look at lunch kettles for children and toys, it's like a flowing sewage system of filth and pus. You hardly know where to look. It's hardly fit to go shopping. You go into J.C. Penney's, and sometimes my wife, I, I hate shopping. I don't like to go shopping even in a hardware store. But you want to walk through the ladies' section to get stuff, and it's hardly fit to walk in there. And you might say, hey, you're a little bit simple. You know, you're a little bit naive and sheltered. Well, maybe I am, but you know what? I never commit a sexual sin either. All right, so maybe I am sort of protective of myself, and I don't trust myself. And so I believe in a strong degree of accountability, and I made a plan many years ago that when I encounter such and such a situation, here's what I'm going to do. And that plan served me well. And I gave that plan to my sons, and it served them well. And so what plan do you have for your life to stay morally pure? What, what plan? You know, we do a lot of planning. Before we buy a car, we do planning. How much money do I have? We go to the dealership. You know, men, we bend over backwards, almost break our vertebrae, our neck and our nose to try and see, is there any rust? Well, you people don't have any rust down here below the border. And so, you know, how does the engine run? Does it take oil? And we ask a hundred questions. And then if we, when we get the answer, we don't even understand what he said. Anyhow, those of you who are not mechanical minded, some of you guys are in construction, so you hardly know what a spark plug is. You younger guys do not know what a carburetor is, but we still go through the manly process of making a plan and asking a lot of questions. 
But then when it comes to managing one of the greatest gifts that God gave every one of us, that of human sexuality, we do very little planning. We hardly give it any thought. And so we don't really communicate God's truth of moral purity to our children because we think our 12 and 14-year-olds are innocent and they don't know anything about the birds and bees. So we did uh, what our grandpa did and what you and I did. You know, we weren't taught. We think they don't know. They're too young. And so they get it out of the gutter, just like you did. Unless you're here as a 14 or an 18-year-old and your dad had his head threaded right. So all of us from the age of 30 and over, where did you learn about the birds and the bees? I can tell you tonight, you got it in the gutter. Where was your dad? All right. So what is your plan? And so when I was here 12 and a half years ago, I didn't introduce this subject because you guys that are here now that are dating, you know, you were just kids. And so... And the dynamics of this congregation as I studied it then and as I study it this week are not the same. So it's time to talk about this subject. Because there's all kinds of impurity. I mean, years ago, if you're going to get involved in pornographics, you had to run a lot of risks. You had to jump in your car, go down to the whatever store, make sure no other Mennonite ladies in there shopping and buy this magazine and hide it and whatever, you know. And I, I, I never did that, praise God. Oh. Uh, and so what are you going to do with this thing? And, you know, but anymore, it, you know, it's in your pocket. You pull that cell phone out and you go browsing. And I mean, it's just right there. So what are you going to do? I, I would really like to know, and I'm not going to ask in this kind of setting, how many of us, even women included, have seen pornographic digital material on your cell phone? You might be shocked. And so when I was a younger man, I don't like to say an evangelist. Sounds like a big title, oh, me, Fox Evangelist, but okay, for a preacher. Uh, I would get into certain congregations, and I would study the people, and I think there's, there's no immorality in this congregation. So I you know, almost hesitated to talk about it, and, but I, I, I discovered that you're a fool. A pastor is a fool when he thinks that there's no possibility for people in his congregation be indulged in some kind of sexual wickedness. And so I don't run that risk anymore. Now listen, it's only six years ago that I was at Church X, and you don't know where that is, and it's a church about this size, and the young boys sitting here, and the young girls were sitting over here, and I thought, boy, by Wednesday night, I can go home. This church, I mean, they got it all knotted up. But there was an instinct inside of me that said, come on, you had enough of meetings you know better. And it came to the end of the week, and every one of those boys was in pornography. And several of the girls, not in pornographic photo, but in readings. When I speak about this subject, my wife says, you're way too easy on the women. Because I see it, feel it, through the eyes of a man. My wife sees the whole thing through the eyes of a lady. And she says there's fantasizing and romantic imaginations and there's Harlequin books to read. And women just commit the same sin in a different way. And I'm literate enough to know that that is true. And so it's very prevalent. Again, I want to say I do not suspect any person here tonight. I really don't in my home church where I come from. And we have maybe a few more young people than you all do. 
and it just worries me to death. You know, we don't have television where I go to church. We're conservative, a lot like you are, uh, but we have a cell phone. And wherever I go, wherever I go, I mean, in the, in the last years, I've been to Georgia and I've South Carolina and Mississippi. I've been through the South. I mean, there's 14-year-old boys that are on this garbage. Where do they get it? Where are we? And somehow, we just, we, we have these cell phones. And you say, oh, come on, preacher, you're against technology. No, I'm not against technology, but I'm against sin. And so, you know, when, when food that looks good has enough of poison in it, there comes a, there comes a time when you, you stop eating the food because of the, the amount of poison and pollution that's in it. You don't eat it anymore. And so is the time coming where if we can't get blocks that work and filters that young people don't know how to get around and pull, then the time's going to come. I'd rather be phoneless than full of sin, wouldn't you? That sounds antiquated. I don't care how antiquated it sounds. This is not about being technological or antiquated. This is about being holy and getting to heaven and not going to hell. All right. So... This subject is dear to my heart. And in my short little experience of being a pastor and getting into different congregations here and there preaching, this is sin number one. Sexual immorality is sin number one in every church I've ever been in. Number one. Told. And it's the hardest to get out. It's the hardest thing somehow to Embarrassing. It's, there's a shame that goes with it. Sin is shameful. Sin is condemned. And this is just one that's so intricate to our very inner person that it's hard to deal with. And so I want to deal with it delicately tonight and just look at it. No special buttons. I'm going to preach out of the Word of God. You'll hear nothing new. So let's go to the book of Matthew, the Master Missionary, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. I would like to look at one beautiful verse cozily tucked away in what we call the Beatitudes. Now let me ask you a question. According to theologians, of which I am not, they tell us that there are about 823 promises of God in the New Testament alone. Good fact for you. So there's all kinds of beautiful promises tucked away in the Word of God. Now let me ask you. Of all those promises, which one do you think is the most precious? Which of all these great promises is the most astronomical? So let's look at the Beatitudes. Are you there? Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus goes up into the mountain and the multitudes of people come swinging up to him, cozying up to him like they always did. There's a reason for that. Why they did that and he opened his mouth, he begins to speak. And he gives us what we call the Beatitudes. And he says, blessed are the poor, because they're going to in inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that's a good one. The people that are poor are going to inherit, possess personally, equal to Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven. I never saw heaven. Neither did you. That, that's a good one. So number three, blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, I'm sorry, four. Blessed are the people that mourn, they're going to be comforted. So I know what it's like to be comforted, but that is a really, really good promise, okay? But all right, so there's better ones. Verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, I'm sure you people did a lot of 
more traveling than me, but I, I saw a nice section of the great United States of America. So I can sort of imagine owning Colorado <laughs> and a few places like that. Eh, come on. And so I, I, my mind stretches to that. Verse 6, blessed are the people that hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're going to be filled. I know what it's like to be filled. I think my wife is full of love. I had godly parents. My mother was an angel. And I've been raised in good churches. And I'm in a good church now. My wife loves me. If I go to hell, I, if I open up my eyes in hell, I'm going to have the hottest spot. So I know what it's like to be filled with good food, too. Do I look at Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, they're going to obtain mercy. I know what it's like to obtain mercy, but I think this is one of the greatest. Let's read it together. Here we go. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. All together is what I meant. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's a little apologetic. Can we have a little bit more steam? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, according to the word of God, no warm body yet. No warm body ever saw God. Now, the Bible says that maybe Moses saw the back part of God, but because of God, because of who he is, the nervous system in which we have does not facilitate us to gaze onto the glorious beauty of the person of God the Father. We would fall over. We'd lose consciousness. We couldn't do it. And so I can hardly imagine seeing Jesus. But thousands of people have already seen Jesus Christ. You know, I just can't imagine what it's going to be like to, when we get to heaven, to walk into the dynamic, glorious presence of God the Father without being blinded, falling over, losing consciousness, or whatever. But the Bible says, blessed are the pure in what? Heart. So, if we're going to have pure eyes, if we're going to have a pure lifestyle... If we're going to be sexually pure, morally pure, we've got to have a pure heart. And so if you're here tonight and somehow you are fantasizing, you are committing some kind of a sexual lustful sin, then, you know, your mind is not pure. Your life is not pure before God. He knows. He can look. He can see. And the reason why your life is not pure is because your mind is not pure. Your eyes are not pure. You're giving it over. You're giving, you are pledging allegiance to the enemy. And so your life is not pure. You are contaminating and decimating your life before Almighty God, even after he has opened up the windows of heaven, cascaded everything upon you in order to save you from that particular sin. But you're not listening to God. You're in resistance. You're rebelling against God. And so you, be, you, you, you make an alliance with the devil and you, you begin to look at filth, you begin to imagine filth, any type of sexual involvement, and you do that with your body, you do it with your life, only because your heart is not pure. And so it's really a matter of the heart. So the Bible here is saying, blessed are the pure in heart. Now I know there's more than one way we can look at the word pure. The one word would be that our hearts would be genuine and converted, for real. They are pure. They're genuine. No hypocrisy. Okay? It does mean that. But in the context here, it means more to be free from moral pollution and contamination. So you say, what does that mean? 
sexual pollution and contamination. Well, the Bible tells us. And if you'll give the old preach here a few moments, because, you know, my preaching goes a lot slower than it did 10 years ago. You, you probably thought of that. You've got to slow down with, you know, like everything else starts slowing down. We're going to get there, and I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you what these moral impurities and pollutions and contaminations are. God makes it very, very clear. We don't have to imagine, what is he saying? What's the Bible saying? So tonight, all I'm going to do is, I'm going to tell you what God calls sexual contamination and pollution. It's all right there. And I want to do it delicately so that I don't offend anybody. Uh, but if you want to be blessed, we need to be free from any type of contamination. And that's difficult. And I'm going to say that you're probably not going to do it real well without a plan. Without a plan. And so if you're here tonight and you're a young person, your dad needs to come beside you. He needs to give you a plan. You need a plan. I fortunately had a plan. <clears throat> I remember some years ago, <laughs> uh, I was speaking at a youth conference in Indiana, and I got up early, I think it was Saturday morning before the conference began, and I was walking down this country road, and there were cornfields on both sides, my wife and the boys were smaller back then, it could have been 15 or even more years ago, and as I'm walking down this road, up ahead on the left, I see a filthy magazine, all right, so then the devil's going to do the same thing to you. He's going to give you 200, if not 2,000 opportunities to send your soul to hell by the time you're 16. And you know it. And you know it. And so there I am all alone. I was tempted. Oh, my wife's back in bed. There's cornfields. Nobody's going to know. And so I can just go look at that magazine, eh? Get in that centerfold real quickly and... No! I had a plan. So I got up to that thing. I should have done differently, but I kicked it into the cornfield. I should have closed my eyes, and I should have torn it up, or I don't know what I should have done. But I didn't look at it. So when I come back home, I told my wife, and I just felt free. I just felt white and clean. I had a plan. Now, in more recent years, I was taking a walk one Sunday afternoon, and I <clears throat> packed the field lanes behind our house. And I was... <clears throat> approaching our house, and I saw a pig. They're in the field lanes. They're nice, whatever. And I, I thought what I saw is horrible. I wasn't sure until I went like this, and I got that thing and scrunched it up, and I come in near the house, and as I was near the house, my wife came out, and... Well, let me say this first. I knew that what's on this page would not contaminate my wife. So I said, Han, just look at this thing. I, I'm not even sure what I saw. And I didn't want to get sure. And so I turned my back and she unfolded that thing and it was bad. Where did you get this? Out there in the field lane. Our boys could have come upon that thing. So, you know, I had a plan. I knew what I'm going to do. So when I travel to foreign airports around the world, if my wife is not along, I have a plan. If I sit beside a lewd lady 
a flirty lady, I have a plan. I know what I'm going to do. I know how I'm going to talk. And, but I never had that problem of women gushing over me. I, I, there's something wrong when you visit with Mennonite men. And they had 25 stories how all these women want to gush over them. Now, I know I don't have charm, looks, or money. I know that. But I'm not saying that it never happened. But I have a plan. And the few times the woman must have been halfway crazy trying to strike something up like that with a person like me, I soon brought in my wife. And are you, are you a lady? Are you a church-going lady? You sort of taper into the thing? Yes, me too. She, they're done. Get a picture of my wife out and this woman's back there of her in the hanging. And yeah, hey, I'm, I'm romantically married to a lovely woman and we have children at home. And are you a church-going lady? She's done. She knows right where I stand. The flirting or whatever is over. But I don't have 25 stories like that to tell, like some men claim. And if you're one of those men that has 30 or 42 and a half stories to tell, I might test your sexual integrity. Why would a woman feel free to start hitting up on you? Right? I know none of you men would do that. Not that you're not handsome enough, but you wouldn't do it. So we all need a plan. All right, let's go to Galatians 5. Let me show you something. Please get your Bibles, open it up, go back to Galatians chapter 5. Let's look at some of these words that I want to quickly study tonight. We're going to run out of time again. But we are in Galatians chapter 5. If you remember real well, if you have a good memory, we were there last night. Weren't we just a little bit one time? But we're going to skip over these verses 16 through 18. And we're going to jump right in at verse 19. Are you there? Okay. So here we go. Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are very, very apparent. They're public. They are shining. Maybe you have a, maybe you have another version. Maybe you have the amplified. The works of the flesh are easy to see. And they are these. Number one, adultery. Number two, fornication. Now you say, preacher, that doesn't really happen very often in our churches. You're probably right. Listen, I'm going to predict. I am going to predict. And I, I think it's happening already. We are going to see in our conservative Anabaptist churches like your church, the type where I come from, an escalation. We're going to see an escalation in fornication in young people who are not married, and we're going to see a withdrawing of husbands from their wives because after a man is married, he gives himself over to pornography. He, it distances himself from his wife. He has less interest in his wife. It drives him away. He, he becomes dysfunctional. It ruins his God-given desire for his wife. We are going to see. I am predicting, and I'm not a theologian, and I'm not a prophet. But if we're going to keep on with this cell phone thing, if we're going to keep on the way we are now, the reckless pace of electronic usage, we are going to reap a harvest soon. And I think it's starting now. All right? Okay, so now I know, I know these words, these first two words, adultery, fornication, big whoop. All right, what's the next one? Uncleanness and lasciviousness. That's how you say that word. Is that how you say it below the border? Lasciviousness. Some have a 
the CH in there, you can say it both ways. I think it's your smartphone. No, don't. Maybe you ought to get rid of it. Now I'm back to smartphones right away again, ain't I? So we have uncleanness and lasciviousness. Now, go to Ephesians 5. Let me show you. There's some more words here. Ephesians chapter 5. It says here that we're, we are dear children. We are the children of God. We said that last night. And uh, we are to walk in love as Christ loved us. Our life should be a sweet smell to God the Father. And then in verse 3 it says, But fornication and all... What's the next word? Uncleanness. Uncleanness and filthiness and lasciviousness. And now we have covetousness. Let it not once be named among you. This is the word of God. I'm preaching the word of God. It should never be named among us, but it is named among us. And who knows? Who's going to be the next 14-year-old boy? Who's going to be the next 16-year-old young lady? I don't know who that is. And I'm not a negative, critical person. Those of you who know me best, I'm not a pessimist. Maybe not enough of a pessimist. Uh, who knows what's going to be the next fatality or whatever you would say. So we have this word here, uncleanness and covetousness. Covetousness is simply lust. Lust out of control. I guess all lust is very, very sinful. But lust has a way of binding us and taking us deeper and deeper. There's no convenient stopping point because when a person begins to lust, it creates a greater appetite for more. Faster horses, bigger engines, you know, more lewdness. It's progressive. It's just progressive. When we give our bodies over to this type of addiction, it is progressive and it is aggressive. And there's no depth. The devil knows no limit. There's no depth to which the devil is going to take you, even to the point of suicide, because of lust. So now let's look at these words. You know, we have the words of, we have some words here of lust or uncleanness, and filthiness. Those are words, you know, people being immodest, people being lewd. All kinds of exploits and fantasizings and indecencies and imaginations and pornography. All goes in with this thing of lust that kills the spirit and brings our, our minds and our bodies into a destructive bondage. Lust. This uncleanness. And before I forget, I want to say this right now. And as, as, you, as you study the word of God... We notice something about the consequences of sexual sin. And I don't know whether you ever thought about this, but I want, to, I want you to think about it tonight. When you study the Word of God theologically and systematically, you will discover that where we read about sexual sins in the Bible, the consequences are always worse, stay with me, and more long-ranging and more damaging and heavier than what is even murder. Did you know that? It's true. You look at the Bible, whether it were sexual sins, incest, or whatever, the consequences that befell those persons, the, the consequence is harsher and more long-range than what was even the sin of murder. And I had to wonder, why, why is that true? 
There are several reasons why that is true, why God so hates sexual sins. Number one is, is because when a person commits a sexual sin, he sins against his own body. It's a sin against his own body. Now here, here's why that is true. I didn't understand this for a while, and I used to tell people, well, it's just a sin against our own body, and, and it's a sin against God and the body of Christ, but I... And, you know, it, it's horrible to God. That's why it was what we call one of the great sins of the New Testament where, you know, death, it was called not an imperial sin, but it was a big sin that called for death in the Old Testament. Why was that true? And so finally I figured it out after studying the whole thing through. And here's why God so hates sexual sins. Number two, God has designed human sexuality as the means of reproducing people in his own image, right? So what are some characteristics of God? God is pure, God is holy, God is sinless, God is just. And so you and I are created in the image of God. Therefore, every human life is sacred. We believe in what we call the sanctity of human life. Every child that's born, even when they're an adult and they are not converted and do know, not know God, that human life in the eyes of God is sacred because that person is created and is to function in the image of God himself. So human life, God puts a premium on human life. It's sacred. Human life is holy. The very life of that ungodly person, his life is holy. This is why murder is wrong. Now, so how did that person who is holy in the eyes of God, his life, get to be? Well, his mother and his daddy got together. It's called human reproduction. And so God uses our sexuality to reproduce people who have lives that are holy and sanctified in God's image. So when we start messing around with God's holy plan as to how God is going to reproduce humanity, you're messing with the apple of God's eyes. You know, whenever we, whenever we mess around with God, when we change His word, when we change His will, when we are hypocritical, when we, when we secularize, when we, make, when we use something that God meant to be holy and we contaminate it and make it unholy, we begin to mess with the very holiness and the epitome of what makes God who he is. So God is holy and your life is holy. And we come into being through human reproduction. And when we mess with it, when we contaminate it, when we adopt the principles of the devil in order for what God meant to be as a vehicle of human reproduction, God is angry. And the consequences are serious and long range. And so that's why God says fornication, all uncleanness, covetousness, let it not once be named among you as become a saints. Now look at verse 4. We, we stopped too soon. Neither filthiness. So what in your mind could be filthy? Filthiness. He's talking about moral things. He's not talking about dirty dogs and dirty pigs in the pig stable. He's not talking about your dishes when you're finished eating spaghetti or egg yolk, you know, or grease if you're a mechanic. 
That's not the kind of filthiness he's talking about. He's talking about moral, sexual filthiness. So you, you decide, what, what is it? Uh, sexual sins do not begin in the body. They begin in one's mind. And they begin in the mind because you invite it in, you allow it in. The devil cannot force us to sin. Listen, get this good. If the devil could force us to sin, there would be no hope for any of us. We could not help ourselves. So the devil cannot force us because he can't. God will not force us into obedience because he's a perfect gentleman. But he makes the way of escape very, very possible. And God tells us how to be holy and how to escape temptation. So the devil cannot force us to sin. He cannot force me to be filthy. If I have a filthy mind and I'm reading books, looking at things, and maybe you say, well, I'm not on pornography. How about your courtship standards? How, how about your eyes when you go into town and you see things that aren't fit to look at? It doesn't have to be pornographic as the world would say pornography. There's things that are filthy and unfit to look at that would, the world would not class as pornographics. It's not fit to take my children into Sears. Or don't they exist? Or is it pennies? I forget. You can tell I'm not a shopper. One of those I think is out of business. Or am I wet? I don't know. Filthiness. Anything, anything that contaminates, anything that contaminates the way God created for human reproduction. Anything that contaminates, anything that works against it is filthiness. So it can be the books you read. Oh, it can be my thought life. Filthy. And we'd be nice Mennonites, go to church, put nice clothing on. We can dress up, have nice black shoes, and we can have uh, veilings on. And inside, we can be filthy. It's very, very possible. It happens wherever I go. I'm not insinuating that I think I'm preaching to a group of filthy people. I'm just saying the possibility exists that there could be one person here tonight that's filthy. And if you want to get mad at me, I'm a calloused old guy ready to retire. Go ahead and get mad. I'm, I'm not going to change my sermon anyhow i've been through that and I, i'm beyond all hope and so i'm just going to keep right on going <laughs> filthy now i'm going to look at the word lasciviousness sometimes we don't quite understand the word lasciviousness and if you're here tonight as a father and you have teenagers or you have little children there's a time coming before they turn 14 you got to teach them what lasciviousness is. What does that really mean? Now, let me, let's just look at that word a little bit. Lasciviousness and uncleanness, when you study it in the Greek, has to do with when a person deliberately does something sexual in his own body in order to produce or to attract sexual passion in the life of another. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, miniskirt. So when a woman dresses immodestly, she may not totally understand the power of her own body, but many times they do. And so when a man is deliberately immodest or he flirts with a woman or teases a woman in some way, anything that a person might do to excite sexual passion in the life of the opposite sex is lasciviousness. This is why we dress, dress modestly. This is why we cover our bodies. And I'm not going to tell you how to do that. 
there's more than one way to do it. And it's not just only the cape dress. My wife wears a cape dress. Boy, you know, I have sisters that don't wear cape dresses. They're just as modest as my wife, and I love it. All right, so, but it's a good way to do it. So make sure, young ladies, young men, that you cover your bodies. Because when I go out into society, I have a love and a passion for my wife. And when I go to foreign countries and I get into a lot of what I call third world equator countries where ladies go to church extremely immodest. And I just tell them right over the pulpit, ladies, I don't want to see your body. If you come back to the service tomorrow night, come back dressed. Because I'm a married man. Number one, I'm a man. Number two, I'm a married man and I love my wife and I only want to see my wife. I don't want to see your body. And the way about 25 of you ladies are dressed here tonight, it's distasteful to me. And there's a lot of other godly men in this audience who have married wives too. And they don't want to see your body. Go home for good night's sake, for the sake of Jesus Christ, and get dressed. And we have to tell the men the same thing. They're flirting with the women. You've been into third world equator countries. Yeah, it's horrible. And so they might say, oh, you're just a Mennonite. I don't care if I'm a Mennonite or Baptist or whatever. The word of God is the word of God. Oh, you're just more conservative than I. It's not about being conservative. It's about being spiritual. It's about pleasing God. It's about being holy. It's about keeping our life in order and pleasing God. Don't give me some of the label. You're not a Baptist. You're just conservative. Who cares? No, it's the word of God. I'm preaching the word of God. Go home and get dressed right. Now, I always treat the soul with it, too. Don't think that I go to some other country as a guest speaker and just preach clothing. No, no, no. But they both go together. But when it comes to morality, there's a line people should not cross. And they do it. And they need to be reminded. Lasciviousness is when I do something in my body to attract, to, to produce sexual arousal in the opposite sex. That's wrong. This does not mean that we don't clean up nice and comb our hair nice and put a little bit of cologne on so we don't stink. It doesn't mean those things. It just means there's a line we don't cross. It doesn't mean that we don't respect women or are not kind to women and warm to women. Of course we are. But absolutely no sexual contact or verbiage whatsoever. Let me explain what I mean. So... When I was a oh, if I so when I was a young preacher, I sort of you know I would I did my share of preaching at youth meetings, and so I, I was a little reluctant to come across with a hands-off policy. I was a little reluctant to do that, but I knew how a lot of around the Baptist young people are dating. You sit in the living room, you go to church, come home from church nine thirty, sit there in the living room from nine thirty to midnight. That's tough. Been there, did that. So I got to thinking about this thing of lascivious, lasciviousness and physical contact. And the reason why, I want to tell you, I think that if you're here tonight as a young person, and you need to explain this to your 10-year-old boys, when it's the last thing they would do is touch a girl for fear of permanent contamination. That's when you stop it, when they can't stand to hear that stuff. That's when you stop it. You wait till you're 16, I'm sorry. You're going to have a tough time relating to me. You start talking about this thing in family worship. 
Here's the way you treat young ladies. Here's how you're going to treat those girls when you go to school. Here's how you're going to date. I used to line my boys up five in a row, and I put my chair here, and we talked about girls, and we almost had to bring in the vomit bucket. But they learned. And when they turned 13, they heard the same thing, and 14, they heard the same thing, and I think a little bit caught on. Yeah. You wait till they're 16 and 18, then you're going to be like the dad say, hey, I don't know how to relate to my boys. I mean, how do you, how do you start talking about this stuff? They're not very open to it. Well, absolutely, they're not going to be open to it. You start when they're young. So this thing of courtship, this thing of, the Bible says it's not good to touch a woman, vice versa. So why is that true? Okay, so uh, when, it, when it comes to sexual purity, you know, in so that we don't commit fornication and adultery and so on. Why is it true that it's good that we should have a hands-off thing? It's true because it's true because the reason why young people like to hold hands and why they like to hug and kiss and those types of things is because it feels good, right? And so what they're doing is, whenever, whenever we or they, young people in their courtship, whenever they do anything that feels good, that feeling good, what's happening there is they are preparing, and, and again, I want to be delicate, they are preparing their bodies for the act of marriage. Now, when a body is being prepared for the act of marriage, there's no convenient stopping point. And so I would tell my boys before they go to date, hey, Mike, hold it, hold it. Before you go out there, remember, there's no convenient stopping point. And so if that's true, you're not going to start it because you don't want to start something you can't stop. Now listen, the reason why there's no convenient stopping point is because there is none. God did not create in our bodies a convenient stopping point. He meant, he, God created human sexuality to be aggressive and progressive. There's not like when you're climbing a mountain, you get up to the first base, then you go up another 5,000 feet and there's another base, you can stop. If you're not tough enough, you can go back down. There are no stops. There's no convenience. And the reason why there isn't is because God didn't make any. Because the act of marriage is meant to be, created to be by God, progressive, until you reach the ultimate. And so when young people do not understand this, they go, we're just going to hold hands. We're just going to hug and kiss a little bit. And then soon, well, their hands start going where they shouldn't go. Why do they do that? Because it feels good. Because it feels good because they're preparing their bodies for something greater. And there's no place to stop. That's called lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is a sin. When I do something to prepare my body or the body of somebody else for the act of marriage. It's only in marriage that these things should ever be. Never in courtship. Oh. That's why it's wrong for a married man to look at pornography. Because what's on that thing is not his. It's not his. And a man that got his head threaded right in the word of God does not want to contaminate himself on some other image. I don't want to see it. Oh, 
I don't want it because I know it's destructive power. I remember when I, when Janet and I were dating, we struggled. It was a struggle. And then one Sunday afternoon, I ran across a young guy who said, you know what? I love my wife, my girlfriend, sorry. I love my girlfriend so much. There's no way, no way I would ever commit fornication and ruin her reputation and her relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and steal her virginity outside of marriage. I love her. I can't do it. And love won't do it. It's lust. It's lust that wants to get all physically involved. It's lust because you're not married. It's meant for marriage. It's meant for the act of marriage. Aggressive, progressive. There's no place to stop. That really helped me. I love my wife so much. We came to that marriage altar pure. But I want to tell you, I don't like when preachers get up front and say, oh, yeah, I just do plan X, Y, Z, and you just float, you know, to the marriage altar on flowery beds of ease. Not for me. Not for my wife. It was a struggle. But I want to tell you, the power and the resource and the glory of God and the strength of Jesus Christ is greater than your uh, sexual desire. It can be contained. It can be contained if you follow Bible principles. So I want to show you something real quickly. Can I can I have another five minutes real quick? Is this boring to you or okay? Go to Thessalonians first. First Thessalonians chapter four. You knew that's where I'm gonna go, right? Okay, first Thessalonians chapter four. Now, I'm going to hurry because we've got we to gotta get down here furthermore than we beseech you, brothers. And we exhort you, we beg, and we plead with you by the Lord Jesus Christ that as you have received of us, how that you should walk morally and please God so that you would abound more and more spiritually because you know what commandments we gave to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, what are those, those next words? Go ahead. This is the will of God. So if you're here tonight as a married man, you're here tonight as whatever, a young person, here is the will of God for your life. If you want to know where God wants you to go and how God wants you to act, right here it is. Here's the will of God. This is what God has in mind for you. Even your sanctification even the way that you keep your body separated from any type of contamination and filth. This is your sanctification that you should, what's that next word? Abstain. That you should abstain. That means to pur purposefully avoid or shrink away from. You need to abstain from fornication that every one of you should know how to possess or manage and control his sexual passions, his vessel, his body, that you would know, be able to know how to control it, how to manage it in honor and in sanctification, not in the lust of concupiscence. The lust of concupiscence is sexual passions that have been 
aroused outside of marriage. They have no right to have been aroused. They should not have known. They should not be doing. They should not be experiencing. They should not be feeling in their bodies what they are feeling. It is only inside of marriage. And when we practice these things outside of marriage, they become as ugly as when we practice these things inside of marriage. Human sexuality is one of the most beautiful, pleasurable things outside of salvation. And as beautiful as it is in marriage, it can be as ugly and destructive when it's practiced outside of marriage. It's two extremes. Okay. So he's saying, here's the will of God. You need to be sanctified. You need to control your sexual passions. And the way to control it is, is to starve it. Starve it. So, do any of you people have a German Shepherd? So you, the, the, the sexual passions that we have inside our bodies is like a German Shepherd. So when I was down in Nicaragua a few weeks ago, they had a huge German Shepherd dog. Muscular. I didn't, I didn't quite trust the dog. But he was there for a reason. And German Shepherds are moody. Eh? You think you have them trained, and they're not. That's like our sexual passions. So one way, one sure way to control that dog is starving. You stop feeding that dog, he's going to get weaker and weaker. And he's going to start losing his manhood. He's going to start losing his bark, his growl. He's going to lose strength. You feed that dog or the lion. Did you ever, did you ever visit a zoo where they're feeding the lions and they're back and forth in their cages? They're just pacing back and forth. And then the zookeeper comes along and slabs the meat and inside his cage. And he grabs that, doesn't chew it, inhales it, swallows it right down. Bang! It's gone. You feed that lion. You feed that German shepherd inside your bag of bones a lot of good mineral, a lot of good food, pornographics, poor courtship standards. He's going to be an animal that's out of control. And he's going to take you places you don't want to go. And you're going to contaminate your body. And you're going to end up in a lot of regret. I get into a lot of churches. There are a lot of men my age and older didn't have teaching like this because this is something you didn't talk about on the pulpit. You didn't even talk about it out back in the... 40 acres in the cornfield. You just didn't mention this to my children are innocent. You don't mention the word. That's the other extreme. So now you know. So those passions that we have, if we're going to control them, if we're going to abstain, you're going to have to control. And never say the devil made me do it. That's not true. Don't say we fell into fornication. You do not fall into sexual sins. You walk into it. You program. You listen. It's step by step. You run daring risks. And you do it. You think it through. You calculate. Never say, I fell into sexual sin. That's a lie. Don't let yourself think that. This word abstain is so beautiful. So when I travel down the Pennsylvania Turnpike and the speed limit is 70, and I know there's cops out there with radar and I drive 71 or whatever or 75 or 
And I know there's cops out there, and I don't want to, I have a CDL, and in Pennsylvania, you don't get caught speeding with a CDL because I think the fine and the points is three times out of a regular driver's license. And so with all those cops out there, I'm going to behave, but that's not abstinence. I'm not abstaining. Abstaining is when I'm going up the Pennsylvania Turnpike, I'm going to a Christian aid meeting, and I'm running late, and there's no cops around, none, and I drive the speed limit. I could do it. My wife wouldn't be there kicking me. You're going too fast. The bishop's not in the back seat. But you know, God's in there. He sees it all. So abstain is when we could do something and sort of get away with it. No, that's not abstinence. Abstinence is, no, I was right. Abstinence is when I could do something, maybe nobody would know it, but I don't do it. I don't do it. Joseph. Joseph had a plan. Joseph. And if you go into Genesis real quick, got to get done. So day by day, Potiphar's wife came to Joseph. Day by day, 17 years old. I figured it out again through the, uh, when I was teaching down in Nicaragua. I want to make sure I'm telling the pastors correctly. 17 years old. I went back to all the genealogies, and I think it says it somewhere. I found it. Maybe it wasn't in King James. He didn't commit sin. Joseph had a plan. King David didn't have a plan. The Bible says, I've even tied, but where should have King David been? Well, where should have he been in 2 Samuel chapter 11? He should have been out in the battlefield. He was laying in bed, and at eventide, David gets off out of bed. He's getting out of bed when he should have been going to bed, eh? And so what does he do? He knew third world countries. I know third world countries. When I'm in an equator country anywhere in the world, I, I, I know when not to take a walk. My wife and I don't go walking five, six, seven o'clock when the women go out to bathe in the creeks. You don't, you don't do that. You have a plan. David comes out and he walks up at the edge of the king's wall, the Bible says. He looks out over and he sees a woman. And he inquires after the woman. And he gets the woman's name. And he tells him, go get that woman for me. And they bring the woman. And he takes the woman to bed. And the woman conceives. And he says, who's this woman's husband? And he gets the woman's husband and he kills him. How low can you go? David's name is mentioned in the Bible more often than any other name outside of Jesus Christ. In fact, new clergy fee, 1,117 times. I told you that 12 and a half years ago. But he fell into sin. David did not have a plan. How many of you here tonight have a plan? Are you giving that plan to your 12-year-olds? They need a plan. What they're going to do. They need a plan. Parents need to be involved in the courtship of their young people. You need to be involved. You sit down and you say, before you have your first date, I want to see your list. Here's where we're going to go. Here's where we're not going to go. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're not going to do. They need help. It's security. They love it. They don't have to go through the grueling temptation I did. I want to save them from that. I want to save them from some things my dad did. I want my young people, we want the young people of our church to rise higher than us. 
And if they're going to, you've got to give them the information, you've got to give them the resource, and equip them to rise higher than what you and I were raised. I'm sorry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you for your, your word. It's so clear. And it is so detailed. You give us all the information we need in order to live happy, productive, functional, gung-ho Christian lives. Lord, you've saved us from so much. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for human love. Lord, I just hate to see people wasting all this away. The great gift of virginity, the great gift of sexuality, when we give it over to the devil, it becomes as ugly and cruel as, and as devastating as it is pleasurable and wonderful from you. That's just how the devil is. He's always opposite. There's always extremes. Lord, maybe there's somebody here tonight that's entangled, somebody that's hypocritical. Somebody here that's not satisfied, would you speak to that person? Help them to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Quickly. Get